Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, June 17th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Now that the U.S. is edging closer to President Biden's goal of a 70% vaccination rate, experts are facing a thorny question. Are we going to need booster shots to beat the virus? Vaccinologist Dr. Paul Offit joins us to weigh in. Most of Wall Street was skeptical about Biogen's chances of winning approval for its Alzheimer's drug. There was one analyst, however, who was 100% certain that Biogen would get it done. Her name is Robin Karnaskis, and we'll chat with her about the daredevil stock call that turned out right. And we'll start with some quick takes on the news this week in biotech, but first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT, and I'm here with Charles Fuchs, Head of Oncology Product Development at Genentech. Charlie, I know the role of inclusivity is widely discussed within biotech, but why is it so critical, especially for cancer treatment? Well, Angus, at Genentech, we believe that inclusivity is essential. We ask ourselves every step of the way, how can our clinical trials reflect real-world disease demographics and How can we gather data that are more representative of the patient populations we treat to create a future where every person with cancer receives medicines that are right for them? We're asking these questions to deliver on the promise of personalized care and to optimize treatment outcomes for all cancer patients. Join us in asking these bigger questions at gene.com forward slash ask bigger questions that's g-e-n-e dot com forward slash ask bigger questions all right so let's kick off the podcast with a, a kind of a dish on the week's news and and we should definitely start with curevac um meg what happened to curevac and its covid vaccine Yes, this was hugely surprising. Wednesday afternoon, the news came uh, of the the company's results from their late stage clinical trial of 40,000 participants of another mRNA vaccine. And of course, with the success of Moderna and Pfizer, the expectations were very high that the efficacy would be very strong. And it was 47 Now, the company cited a a large number of variants that were in the trial, although it wasn't clear the exact impact of those variants on the efficacy. And there's some speculation that it could be the differences in the vaccine from Moderna's and Pfizer-BioNTech's. Damien, you looked into this pretty deeply. Yeah. So, you know, not all mRNAs are created, I shouldn't say equally, the same. So, Pfizer and Moderna both use an approach to mRNA where you make a tiny modification that is meant to basically avoid the immune system from attacking the mRNA strand that you insert. CureVac used an unmodified mRNA for its vaccine. And the company's reasoning was, you know, for an mRNA therapeutic, yeah, sure, you'd want to avoid an immune system reaction. But for a vaccine, an immune system reaction is kind of the name of the game. And so that was kind of their thesis going into it. But as a result of using the unmodified mRNA, they used a smaller dose than Pfizer and Moderna did, um, which most likely was to, you know, avoid any kind of too much of an immune reaction. And so a lot of people, CureVac didn't say this, and, and, and they haven't provided really enough detail on the data in question for us to really dig in. But there is a theory going around out there that 
in search of this kind of Goldilocks dose of this unmodified mRNA, they might have had simply too weak of a vaccine to get the kind of efficacy numbers that we've seen from the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. So, you know, the CureVac results are, I mean, just a kind of reminder of, of kind of how fortunate we've been, you know, with the success of all these COVID vaccines. I mean, you know, we hit it out of the park in the, in, you know, right off the, the bat. So like to have a vaccine that doesn't work is kind of not surprising because I think we all sort of ex we didn't expect all of them to work. It just reminds us how incredibly lucky we are that those two vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, which came out first, did work so well because there can be a sense of inevitability now seeing that they replicated one another so incredibly well. But it wasn't inevitable. We were so lucky. And they did a great job, too. <laughs> they did. But it also it, it's a reminder of how much educated guesswork was done uh, last winter when, when these various programs were getting on. All, basically, all of them skipped very quickly from animal studies to human studies and then from phase one to phase three and phase threes that had thousands and thousands of patients, which is, like I said, it's an educated guess, but really rolling the dice scientifically. And, you know, what would appear based on what we've learned recently from CureVac is that their dice roll just didn't come up as well. So speaking of rolling the dice, there were a number of other uh, really closely watched uh, clinical trial uh, results that came out. Sage, Vertex, Adam, you've been following this really closely. Tell us what happened. Yeah, you know, we, we were kind of talking about this already. Uh, you know, there were like three big events for this quarter uh, from a biotech sort of catalyst perspective. You had obviously, you know, the Biogen aticatumab stuff was the big one. But yeah, we had uh, a depression study readout from Sage Therapeutics. And we had a, a, a Vertex study for a sort of a rare inherited lung disease for a drug that they're kind of a corrector drug that they were developing uh, for this disease. And and I think what was interesting is that technically both of the studies were positive in that they achieved their prime, you know, they, they achieved their primary endpoint with statistical significance. So usually that's the benchmark by which, you know, everyone starts applauding and stocks go higher. In this case, uh, both are kind of viewed as failures, actually, because, it, you know, in the SAGE case, their depression drug, while the study worked, the, the benefit, the antidepressive benefit of this drug is just really minor. It's kind of, it's a very small benefit. And I think people are kind of questioning whether or not, you know, if this drug actually gets approved, whether doctors will, will turn to it um, for their patients. And then on the Vertex side, you know, again, it hit stat sig, their primary endpoint, but at the same time, the company decided to discontinue the drug. They basically put it on the shelf because the effect that they saw was just too small. So they're basically going back to the drawing board. So, you know, again, it's an example. These are both examples of where, you know, you definitely have to sort of read beyond the headlines to kind of get what the true meaning is. So we've talked a fair amount on this podcast about the trend of companies going public through SPAC, and we don't have to relitigate that now. But I think one of the higher profile SPAC transactions in our space was that of 23andMe. And Meg, this week, there's some news on that front. Yeah. So 23andMe is going to start trading publicly Thursday. The ticker, me, M-E, uh, it's going to be trading on the NASDAQ. Uh, it, it's going to be really interesting because we're going to start to see a lot more transparency into the numbers behind these consumer genetics companies when it, it was a little bit murky. You always kind of had to work through sort of outside analysts trying to look at the industry and uh, how many people were subscribing and, you know, what the financials looked like. And, uh, you know, on CNBC, we'll have Ann Wojcicki uh, on Thursday. So I'm, I'm really interested to see how she... Uh, handles being a public company CEO because I think we we talked about this months ago when they announced the the SPAC deal with you know Richard Branson's company. Um, 
she never wanted to be a public company CEO. She'd worked in investment banking, had said she couldn't think of anything worse uh, than being a public company CEO because she can get so much more done uh, with the company being private. But clearly that is changing uh, and we're going to get to see a lot more in terms of the sources of growth uh, for 23andMe. They've been putting a big emphasis on drug development um, for years now and we haven't really seen a whole lot come of that. Um, So I'll be really interested to see how much they anticipate that will contribute to their growth in the future. Yeah, you know, the the shine, I think, has come off a little bit uh, from these SPAC kind of shells, call them whatever you want to call them. Um, so it'll be really interesting for me to see, kind of see how, you know, now that this now that this transaction with 23andMe is, is completed and the stock is actually going to trade as 23andMe, you know, how it how it does, how investors react to it. I, I think it'll be a bellwether for sort of how people view these kinds of transactions going forward. I thought you were going to say the shine has come off consumer genetics. I, I'm interested to hear what you guys think of that space. Well, yeah, I mean, that's been a really intriguing subplot in recent years between 23andMe, Ancestry and others of, you know, having this bolus of interest from customers wanting to get their genetic information. And then, you know, as you said, Meg, we've often had to look at it through kind of third parties, but it does seem like demand and by extension revenue has been on the decline. And so what I'm interested in in terms of 23andMe now being public is how they're valued and considered by investors, because you could look at it, you know, in strict terms, like they're retailers of spit tests, and then you would value the company a certain way based upon its sales and et cetera, et cetera. Or you could do what 23andMe maybe seems to want, which is to value it the way people value biotech companies, where you look at the potential of treatments and multiples in the stratosphere. And valuations can be um, a little fuzzier, I think, in biotech, which is maybe a little more preferable to those public company CEOs having such a bad time as, as Anne Wojcicki uh, predicted. But that'll be really interesting, I think, in the, the weeks after they go public and really the years into the future. This week, the Biden administration signed a deal to buy 200 million more doses of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine, potentially aiming to build a stockpile of booster shots to prolong immunity to the virus. And when Novavax reported its phase three data this week, its CEO said it's sort of accepted in the industry that we're going to need boosters. And he said that's going to be a huge market. But are we sure we actually will? And is it okay to mix and match COVID-19 vaccines for future inoculations? So I just want to say that I lodged a mini protest about this segment because, as I told Damien and Meg, I really wanted a few weeks of freedom in this post-pandemic world before talking about the need for more vaccinations. But anyway, joining us to discuss the back and forth over boosters is Dr. Paul Offit. He's a vaccine expert at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and he also serves on the FDA's vaccine advisory panel. Dr. Offit, thanks for coming back on the podcast. My pleasure. So maybe to start off, can you give us sort of the state of the debate over boosters? What are people going back and forth over in trying to figure out whether, in fact, these will be necessary? Well, I think um, it's fair to say that this virus is going to be with us for a long time. I mean, there's 195 countries out there, many of which have not given a single dose of vaccine. You know, we still give a polio vaccine every year in this country, even though we haven't had polio here since the 1970s. We do it because polio still exists in Afghanistan and Pakistan. As long as the virus is circulating out there, as long as international travel is common, this country will be at risk and therefore will need to be highly vaccinated. 
Um, so I think we're going to be dealing with this for years, if not decades. So yeah, I think we're, we're going to need booster doses. The question is, how do you define the need? I, I think a reasonable definition would be um, that we want to make sure that the vaccines that we've gotten still protect us against severe critical disease, meaning still protect us against hospitalization and ICU admission and death. That's a lower bar. And I think with that bar, we probably would need a vaccine maybe every three to five years. If you're trying to say, I, I set the bar and I want to protect asymptomatic infection or mild infection, that's going to fade over time. I mean, the 90% effectiveness that we see now with this vaccine will, for all disease will fade to 80%, 70%, et cetera, over time. But I think against severe critical disease will remain high for, for years, I would imagine. What is the standard typically used to determine if you need a booster shot? Is it uh, preventing mild disease or infection and really trying to stop spread completely? Or is it that protection against hospitalization and death? It's protection against severe disease. I mean, we need, you know that we need a tetanus booster uh, every 10 years or so because immunity fades so much so that you're not protected anymore. The same thing arguably with, with pertussis or whooping cough boosters. You know, protection fades so much that you're really not protected anymore. So it's a really lack of complete protection for the most part. And how might the new variants of concern uh, affect the need for boosters? Well, I think the good news about the variants of concern is that that although clearly uh, there are some variants that resist protection, at least against mild or low-moderate disease, so far there is not a single variant that has not shown that, it, you, that, that with these vaccination or with natural infection, that you're not protected against severe critical disease. So I'm not sure that changes the formula yet. Now, if a, if a variant arises, and it could, that is completely resistant to the immunity induced by natural infection or immunization, then you're really not talking about a booster. You're talking about a second generation vaccine. So, you know, as you mentioned, compared with, for example, tetanus, these vaccines are pretty new and we don't know much about, um, you know, the length of the protection that they provide. What kind of data would you be looking for in the short term that might kind of inform that, whether, you know, I guess the correlates of protection um, that, that we still need to find out for these vaccines? Well, I think the data that the CDC is generating, I mean, the CDC now is looking at hospitalizations, trying to answer the question, if people have been hospitalized, have they been known to be previously infected? Have they been fully vaccinated? If so, and they are hospitalized, what strains of, of uh, virus are they being infected with? That, th those are the critical data. I think the CDC came under some criticism in that that's what they were focusing on, but I think that's exactly what they need to be focusing on. And what about mixing and matching? I mean, we don't think about like which brand of flu shot we get every year. We just, you know, get whichever one the pharmacy has typically. Um, what kind of studies do you think need to be done um, to understand if last year I got an mRNA vaccine, next year I'll get a protein vaccine or whatever it is? What do you think should be necessary to know the safety of that? Or is it just sort of accepted that you can mix and match technologies and it should be fine? Right. That's a great question. I think uh, um, we we are going to be dealing with even more vaccines. We're probably going to see not only mRNA vaccines or these vectored virus vaccines like the J&J &J vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine in this country. I think you're also going to see uh, purified protein vaccines like the Novavax vaccine, maybe even inactivated viral vaccines like the Sinopharm vaccines. And, and what we'll learn over the next few years is that probably, as they say at the track, there are horses for courses, that some vaccines work well, for example, for certain populations or certain age groups, that they're different in terms of their safety profiles, that they're different in, in terms of how long immunity lasts, and that there may be differences in terms of whether you can boost one with another that would, in, that would give you longer lasting immunity or give you a safer vaccine. I mean, I think that's just something we're going to learn. I think in many ways, fortunately or unfortunately, we're going to have the time to learn it because this virus is going to be with us for a while.
So while we have, you know, this week, there was kind of a surprise in, in the vaccine world. We've seen these tremendously successful mRNA vaccine results from Moderna and Pfizer. And then we got the CureVac results uh, Wednesday afternoon, 47% uh, vaccine efficacy overall. This was an interim look. They are going to accrue more cases and the number could change. But the company seemed to be blaming it on the presence of variants uh, in the trial. But um, it also just makes you question um, how did an, another mRNA vaccine do so much worse uh, than the first two that we saw do so spectacularly well? What do you make of that? It's hard to know. It also has a lot to do with how you define efficacy. Um, if, if you're defining efficacy against, you know, moderate to severe or critical disease, usually these vaccines all do well. If you're trying to prevent a symptomatic infection or mildly symptomatic infection, that's a much more difficult bar. And, and it, it will always help to do um, side-by-side -side comparisons to make sure you're looking at the same populations, to make sure you're, you're having the same uh, um, crit crit critique in terms of how you're judging efficacy. So hard to know. We should note that we're recording with Paul uh, the morning after a heartbreaking loss for his Philadelphia 76ers. So really sorry about that. There's no coming back from that. But yes, let, let's just go for We'll just pretend that, you know, that life is going to be OK and we'll take one step at a time. So, Paul, one of the other uh, you know major questions about the vaccines right now is just as we're expanding them um, to younger and younger age groups, this um, rate of myocarditis that they have been seeing in younger people, uh, where it seems like it is a higher rate than would be expected. Um, what do you make of the that potential safety signal? How worried should people be? Uh, and how do you think it might affect um, the future of the vaccines for even younger people? The thing that's 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 uh, interesting about this is that it's not what we typically see with myocarditis. I mean, myocarditis is a viral infection, and it's caused by viruses like Coxsackie virus or parvovirus, and that's a pretty serious disease. I mean, it often it requires ICU admission. Uh, occasionally, it's fatal. Uh, it can require heart transplants. Uh, myocarditis, viral myocarditis, is severe. That's not this. Th this is often transient. Uh, it lasts for two or three days. Um, it resolves on its own for the most part. It can be treated with uh, anti-inflammatories, um, but it, it's not what we typically see with myocarditis. So, so um, it is rare. Uh, the, the sort of the analogy I would use is if you took, um, uh, let's say, a, a stadium of 100,000 people and you vaccinated and everybody in that stadium was 16 to 39 years of age, you vaccinated everybody with an mRNA vaccine, two would develop myocarditis. If you didn't vaccinate anybody, 1,300 would develop COVID. Even at current rates in the summer, it would be 1,300. And co first of all, know that COVID itself, the, the disease itself, is, is a rare cause of myocarditis. And more importantly, this MIS-C, this multi-system inflammatory disease, is a common cause of myocarditis. I mean, of the cases that we see at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, when we see MIS-C, they virtually all have myocarditis. So, you know, as always, there are no risk-free choices. There are just choices to take different risks. And I think in this case, um, the choice to uh, to not get a vaccine is the greater risk. The Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices is going to be talking about this tomorrow. Sarah Oliver is going to be talking about this. And, and, and I'm glad it's her because I think when the J&J &J issue came up, she was really good about putting that in, in context, about trying to get people to understand the concept of relative risk, which we're not good at. We're not. I think that... that um, People don't, don't they, 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 I think, tend to overrate, you know, something you do that causes harm as, as compared to, to not doing something and then allowing harm to occur, sort of like the sin of omission versus the sin of commission. Um, but hopefully she'll, uh, she'll lay it out so people can understand it tomorrow. That was really helpful. I mean, the point is, is, you know, we want, you know, we want, we want it to move forward in this world. We want to try and rid ourselves of this virus. But what difference does it make? Because the Sixers suck. You know, I mean, it really, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> 
Is it even worth it? Thanks again for your time today. Thank you. We wanted to interrupt the podcast for one moment to let listeners know about a very cool stat event that is coming up soon. It's called the Breakthrough Science Summit, and as its name implies, we will be exploring breakthroughs in technology and procedures that have remade the world of health and medicine. And with our keynote speakers, we'll take you inside these innovations, examining how they're developed, adopted, and paid for. We'll also take a look at the breakthroughs that haven't yet hit the market, but have the potential to redefine health and medicine in the years to come. The list of speakers is long and distinguished, but among them are Jim Allison, the Nobel Prize winning immunologist and godfather of cancer immunotherapy, Francis Collins, director of the NIH, and Katherine Jansen, the Pfizer vaccine scientist who helped, of course, create its COVID-19 vaccine. This is a virtual event running over two days, July 13th and 14th. Listeners of this podcast can get a discount on registration. Go to statnews.com slash summit and use the discount code P-O-D, all lowercase. We're going to chat with Robin Karnaskis, biotech analyst at Truist Securities in a sec. But first, let's set the stage for what she did with her Biogen stock call. Right. So let's remember back to November 6th of last year. The FDA convened an advisory panel to review the clinical data on Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. At the end of that day-long public meeting, the independent experts on the panel concluded resoundingly that aducanumab should not be approved. The vote against the drug wasn't even close, right? All but one of the experts told the FDA, do not approve this drug. You know, one panel member uh, abstained. So Wall Street reacted as you'd expect. Biogen's stock price fell as investors figured there's no way the FDA approves the drug given how negative the panel was about it. And even cell site analysts who cover Biogen, who are, you know, arguably prone to be bullish even in the face of catastrophe, were hedging their bets. All except Robin Karnaskis. On November 9th, so three days after that FDA advisory panel, Robin published a research note in which she predicted the approval of aducanumab was more likely. Her probability of success, meaning the odds that FDA would approve, was boosted to 100%. She raised the price target on Biogen's stock from $310 to $443 per share. So Robin, welcome to the podcast and congrats on what has to be one of the gutsiest biotech stock calls in a decade, if not more. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. So I guess, you know, to begin with, Robin, way back in November, what did you see following that advisory committee hearing that other people missed that was so key to, to this prediction? I think going into that meeting, there was a lot of things that we had been hearing. And, and um, even speaking with the former commissioner of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb, about comments that Biogen was making, that they're having unprecedented access with the FDA, as well as, you know, potential for accelerated approval using the guidelines that he set forth. You know, he sort of said, I don't think that those guidelines are supposed to be used that way. And I wouldn't, I think calling it um, unprecedented access is, is an over-exaggeration. So going into the panel, people thought Biogen was lying, that they were having this conversation. And there was this real view. So when the panel documents hit, it was clear that Biogen was not lying. So that day, when I saw those documents, that really changed my point of view and sort of led, it's the beginning point to the the change in our thesis to be more bullish. And we we were already more bullish than I think most thinking that we thought the drug worked. But now Biogen was telling the truth. They've been meeting with the FDA and it seemed clear the FDA wanted to approve the drug, even despite what the panel said. So that's sort of the, the key part that we saw was just the documents and the FDA, they want to approve the drug. What was the reaction to your call at that time? You know, we heard from Al Sandrock um, from from Biogen that they sort of endured even ridicule. Did you get ridiculed for that call? 
Yes. So um, the parts to our thesis, people wanted to know where we were coming from. And I was like, look, you know, really was the FDA briefing documents. And we also did some consultant calls, you know, verifying that the FDA does not have to follow what the panel says. And the Alzheimer Association was really having a big influence on the FDA at the time. So people extremely did not like my 100% probability. That was ridiculed um, immensely. But I'll say, you know, as an analyst, I think my job is sort of tell people, if I think this, this drug is going to be approved, where does the stock go? If I put a 70% probability or an 80% probability, be useless for investors. Um, and I need to outline like where I thought the stock would go. And I, I was pretty confident between our KOL checks you know, our feedback from the FDA, that briefing document for sure, that this was really a call on what the FDA wanted and people shouldn't focus so much on the data and the strength of the data. So people really did not like that 100%. <laughs> so, you know, fast forward to, you know, just last Monday when we were all waiting to get the word from the FDA. Um, how nervous were you, Robin? Um, you know, I've been in this business a while, so I wasn't really nervous if I was right or wrong, but I was definitely nervous about the outcome and the, re the stock reaction, because I think in this tape, we don't really know where things are going to go. Um, but I was just shocked like at how broad the label was and how everything sort of was going as planned. Again, Biogen was being honest and the rest of us didn't trust or a lot of people did not trust the company. Um, so I, I was actually relieved, but I think we're all nervous. We all knew our lives would be a mess that morning, whether it was right, good or bad. It was going to influence the world of biotech. Yeah, that was, that was certainly <laughs> a crazy day. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It didn't help that they didn't announce it um, the till like 10 o'clock, I think. So right. we're all waiting around at 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, texting each other going, when, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Our schedules were clear. We didn't have any doctor appointments. We were all waiting for like this big news to happen, um, which was good for biotech in the, in, the, in the end. So you mentioned being shocked at the breadth of the label. What was your reaction to some of the other, I think, kind of surprising things, including, you know, the FDA's use of accelerated approval, and then eventually the Biogen's announcement of the price, the list price at $56,000 a year? Um, accelerated approval, I was not surprised by. And we sort of talked about that. I mean, I thought that that was sort of the easy way out for them to approve the drug, sort of addressing the fact it wasn't super strong data. And they did have some guidelines in place for using it. They weren't precisely, they were based on biomarkers for accelerated approval, but I felt like this sort of fit that bill. That didn't surprise me at all. Um, the price point did surprise me. We were modeling $21,000. Um, but I did understand that I didn't really understand what the margins would be for the drug. I knew that we we're probably all mismodeling the opportunity in some way. And I just didn't, you know, w whether they price it at 51,000. Um, and then the, there's a lot of margins like the COGS, you know, the gross to net, you know, the discounting, all those things will be factored in, which will reduce the cost of the system. Um, but I think that was a surprise. And I think that made a lot of investors more angry. Um, and it took us a week to digest that and sort of make sure that we, felt comfortable that the drug would be used. And then we raised our target price to account and changed our model to account for the new price point. So you mentioned that not only did you read the tea leaves really, really well in terms of what it seemed like the FDA wanted, but you you thought from looking at the data yourself that the drug worked. Um, there has been so much backlash about this FDA decision because so many people think it has not been proven that the drug works. Um, what do you make of of all of that backlash? Um, is it unprecedented to you um, in terms of this decision beyond what we've seen from the FDA before? Yeah, this is definitely unprecedented. You don't really approve a drug that doesn't have squeaky clean data from a statistics point of view. Um, you know, we did do one check with a KOL who 
worked in that division, he said, really, we're evolving to having one trial that's positive in the neuro area and one positive is sufficient. So, you know, that case, you would talk to some consultants, say it's not really unprecedented. You know, there was one really strong trial. um, And I think that's fair. I think that, you know, the bottom line is that uh, you have to sort of, when things like this happen, there's a tendency to just focus on the data and the stats and just be really upset that they don't match and be adamant there. But you can't ignore the fact that the FDA is telling you in many different ways that they want to approve this drug. You just have to own that. And that dr- should drive, I think that drove my thesis and anyone who was interested in this stock, you know, we we're saying well, we believe the FDA is going to approve this drug. And data points that came after were certainly supportive of our thesis. You had one of the heads, Samantha, one of the people who helped develop Atacanema, making a comment at a charity event that was broadcast, webcast live, um, saying that um, the, the discussions with regulators they're having are about how often they should scan the patients. I mean, that's a label discussion. And then they delayed, um, they, they asked for more data and they delayed um, the, the PDUFA date or the, the date in which the drug would be approved by a few months. Again, if they were just going to listen to the panel, they would have rejected it right away. Those two data points sort of supported our thesis in the end. So I think it's unprecedented, but you know, I, I don't think you should, you know, I think in the traditional way, you can think you should traditionally way traditionally look at data sets if they're not strong. Don't think, well, it's going to be like the Alzheimer's situation. I think this was unique. I think the FDA wanted to do something for Alzheimer's. They hadn't done anything for a while, and there was enough data there that gave them confidence. So, Robin, you made this call on Biogen. You got it right. Uh, so what's your outlook for Biogen? What, what do you see for the company moving forward? So we recently, we took a week to digest it. We raised our target price by a couple, by about $100, $200. We took out Europe. We took out Japan because of the pricing. And we don't really have that clarity that we had in the United States with like the FDA color, the FDA advisory panel. You really don't have any nuggets that gives you the confidence that the EU and Japan are going to approve the drug. And we have 12 billion peak sales. We sort of really took down a little bit of the share, probably just because of the pricing and slowed the uptake. I think that is one that's core to our thesis. We don't really give credit to the pipeline, but we made our target price a year in 2022. So I think the company's going to have some trouble over the next six months really getting investors comfortable with this drug and the way they priced it. And I think it's really going to be 2022 where they can come out of it if they start to get market share. And we'll know if we're right or wrong, I think, in 2022 about reimbursement. And the other part, if you really don't believe me and you think Alzheimer's is not going to do well, they have about $660 of NPV to their pipeline. And we did, um, we took four months to do work on the pipeline and really came out saying that, unfortunately, we couldn't give credit to any of it because it's very risky. And you've seen many failures this week. We're not surprised. The stock hasn't gotten whacked because really people don't believe in it. But you got to remember with this, with Biogen, my history of covering it, how many times investors have lost money by the stock popping up $100 plus on news. Um, Tasabri, Techfidera, you know, it's it now at a Canama, multiple times, ups and downs. So I think investors should be nervous not being exposed to the stock, given how much news flow is coming, as well as like, you know, clarity around reimbursement. So before we started recording, uh, you you noted modestly that, yes, we are focusing on this incredible correct call that you had, but that there's certainly a conversation around calls that didn't go that well. So I have to ask you, do, is there something that sticks in your mind of, you know, a time that you kind of went out on a limb with a call that turned out to be uh, deeply incorrect? <laughs> I mean, I think 
the one that sticks in my head was in my early days of you remember Dendrion, where they had the oh, initial yes. therapeutic call, and you know I was like from the science, I think it works. I mean the drug was approved, and then it didn't sell, and it was a disaster. Um, lessons made from the bad calls that I've made is sort of you know ask the questions that you haven't asked before instead of just looking at data. Ask the questions about commercial viability. In this case, it was asking a question about around the FDA and, and what's really going on at the FDA rather than focusing on the data. So it's really asking the questions that people haven't asked that sort of will help me not make those calls in the future. But there's going to be something, I'm sure, again. Well, it's such a great point. And I guess my, my last question for you is sort of taking that lesson from, from Dendrion and seeing, okay, the science is really good. This drug should be approved. It should be a success. And it wasn't. Then here with the aducanumab data, it being more uh, ambiguous or unclear, um, you, you explained how you knew from a stock perspective, this was the right call to make. I wonder if from a, you know, a human perspective and the patient perspective, thinking about aducanumab, would you... Um, recommend a family member get aducanumab if they had Alzheimer's? I mean, I would. I mean, I think that anecdotally hearing about patients getting off the drug, you know, now forgetting where their things purse was or not being able to function and then going back on and having a benefit, I think that tells you there's some sort of benefit. And I believe strongly if you get the high dose and you're on the high dose that in an early stage patient, that it'll prevent or slow the rate of decline. Um, I don't see why you wouldn't try it. I don't think the risk of edema or aria in the brain is is um, sufficient to prevent somebody who's really struggling with uh, a disease that there are no options. So I would, and I think people need to take a step back if they don't have a family member with Alzheimer's and say, and look, talk to people who have had it or have it. And why would you prevent people? They know the risks. Prevent, prevent them from actually having the opportunity to slow the rate of decline and live a better life in the early stages of the disease. Robin, congrats on the great call again, and and thanks for explaining how you got there. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you think the Sixers can turn this series around. Or if, like me, you don't care about basketball. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.